Moss. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Hey, everyone. Another quarantine episode. Not sure how long this is going to go. Not sure sure what we have to add that we haven't said already. I mean, eventually, I suppose we'll just stop saying that and and this will become, you know, normal. It's a horrifying thought. But I mean, we hope, you know, as always, we hope everybody listening that you guys are all doing all right and that you're not, you know, dying of uh, crippling boredom or more importantly, that, you know, you're not lacking in... uh, in wages or the necessities of life. Um, For our last episode, our kind of uh, fan episode that we put behind the Patreon, we got a lot of updates from you guys about how you were doing and um, people listening are all over the world and and are dealing with different things in varying degrees. So uh, once again, we hope everyone's uh, doing okay. I'm anxious that when this pandemic is over and we return to real life, everything good will be gone. Sometimes it feels like over the last 10 or 15 years, there's been this kind of slow and concerted effort to wipe out everything that I personally like and enjoy. This hit home for me a little bit this week when I saw that one of my favorite magazines, Film Comment, is going on what is apparently indefinite hiatus. Next month's issue, they call it the last issue, and it'll be online only, not print. Um, something like 50% of the staff at the Film Society of Lincoln Center was laid off. And it was particularly depressing to see that news of possibly the end of this very storied magazine, this, this institution with 58 years of history that all of the great American critics have written for at one point or another, its probable demise was mentioned like three quarters of the way through a press release mentioning a lot of other downsizing that was happening at the film society and what i mean what happened like anything it's just a case of an institution downsizing supposedly during a challenging economic time i know that it's hard for a print publication at any point in time but um, nick pinkerton wrote something in an article recently that i thought was a good point he said and i'm quoting My fear, and I pray that it is unfounded, is that the result of this pandemic will be an expediation of processes of dismantling and destruction long underway, with catastrophe employed as a cover for enacting amidst the chaos the, quote, necessary austerity measures, unquote, that have been planned for and put off only for fear of public censure slashing staff and wages, dealing print publications the killing blow, and making those short-sighted, identity-diluting, popularizing pivots that inevitably end with a going-out-of-business sign, going on the vitrine a few days later, and a trip to the glue factory, CF The Village Voice, among many, many others. Uh, so, I mean, there's, there's lots to be anxious about at this time, and this is one of the things that has me anxious. I am worried that, you know, I'll emerge from my slumber in a few weeks and everything I like will You'll be fine. gone. There, there, there's nothing left except for Marvel and DC. Those are the, yeah. the the last two totems of culture standing. Or hell, here in Toronto, I'll go to whatever my favorite sushi restaurant is or whatever my favorite bookstore is. And hey, um, it's another Aroma is Espresso Wars. Bar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just everything is everything is infected with the, the Star Wars virus. Yeah, it's like, who was it who did that tweet about why is Star Wars on my banana? It was it Bill was, Corbett. It was, it was Bill, Bill Corbett, right? Yeah. He was like, why does my banana have to be Star Wars? And there's a picture of just like a convenience store banana with like a sticker of C-3PO or something on it. Yeah, but you could imagine that 
I mean, I'm not saying that this is necessarily the case in this instance, but let's say you're a big institution that has in your portfolio a little magazine like, say, Film Comment that, you know, you don't know why you have this thing. It doesn't mean anything to you. What better opportunity to get rid of it than right now? Yeah, well, and, and you know, that uh, very bleak passage from Nick Pingerton that you read, I mean, it sounds a lot, it's sort of for culture what the shock doctrine thesis that Naomi Klein advanced in the book of the same title, uh, I guess a decade or so ago now, which is, for people unfamiliar, you know, the thesis of the book is really that, you know, it's uh, the ri- it's called The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism, and you know, it begins by talking about the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, where all, all these hideous things happened, like, uh, I believe, the privatization of parts of the school system and things like that. And so uh, the thesis of the book is that, you know, disasters, whether kind of natural or, or created in the form of military coups, as in Chile in the 70s, things like that, um, these disasters are used to impose capitalism and, you know, to impose austerity and, and other things. You know, capitalism is often thought of as something that happens uh, organically. Austerity, which is the other component here, is, you know, often packages itself in the language of of necessity. You know, we're doing uh, what we need to do to make sure X, Y, or Z survives, to make sure that we, you know, live within our means, etc., etc. And, um, you know, what uh, what Nick Pinkerton really is describing there is the same thing, only for, you know, uh, small, beloved, uh, storied magazines in a a time who, I don't know who owns Film Comment, but, you know, I guess a lot of these things... Um, you know, they end up being owned by kind of venture capitalists and they're just kind of properties that are, you know, traded and, and oftentimes the people that own them don't actually, you know, care about them in the way that the people who, you know, read them and, and work at them do. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. So we're here in Canada where thus far the coronavirus is nowhere near as bad uh, as, you know, in some European countries, but uh, it's really the United States that I'm uh, most concerned about after this week. Most listeners will know that the U.S. Congress passed this giant uh, stimulus bill, went through the Senate a few days ago, and I haven't checked, but it was being debated and was expected to pass in the, in the House last night. This week, I was doing some reporting on uh, what various countries are doing to protect people's wages during this crisis. And it really is astonishing how different the American response is to countries like Denmark, even Britain, which has a very right-wing government. And I think you can put a certain amount of this down to what you might broadly call the political culture of the United States. And the major difference here is that in the United States, a lot of the measures in this uh, in this stimulus bill are designed to help people after they've already been laid off or, you know, so people are going to be getting a means-tested, uh, depending on their income, kind of short-term cash injection. It's not very much money. There are bailouts for particular industries. There are zero-interest loans for small businesses, that kind of thing. And unemployment insurance is uh, is getting a boost. However, this uh, is pretty different from what countries like Denmark are doing, where the state is essentially stepping in and telling companies, if you don't lay people off, you won't have to cover all of their wages while they're not working. In Denmark, I believe the state is paying something like 75% of wages for people while they're, while they're not at work, and employers are only charged with paying 25%. And what this means is that companies are, are not going to be engaging in these kind of mass layoffs, 
the United States last week alone, there were over 3 million unemployment claims filed. And that exceeds the record, which I believe was set in 1982. So this is going to be catastrophic in terms of the number of people laid off. And it's a, a textbook example of how the dominant American political culture, which is ostensibly built around this idea of you know, free enterprise and limited government and things like that, actually produces an outcome that is far less efficient, far more bureaucratically cumbersome, because they're going to means test all of these grants that they are giving to people, and is going to actually imperil in the coming weeks and months the basic operation of, of the U.S. economy. It's, just, it's not clear what's going to happen. So as we kind of move into the next phase of all of this, I think uh, what we're going to start to see is the very different impacts of the virus uh, economically on different countries, depending how they responded. And, and based on how the United States has responded, you know, I'm a little worried about uh, what exactly is going to happen down there. Uh, the president has a 60% approval rating on his handling of the coronavirus crisis. W- would you say we are in good hands? <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, this this crisis has been hugely beneficial to basically anyone in charge anywhere, it would seem, regardless of how well or how badly they're doing. I mean, um, a lot of uh, you know listeners in New York State in particular will be aware of the cult of Andrew Cuomo worship that's become sort of a, a media phenomenon where these, these ridiculous articles about you know him becoming a kind of lust object, people tweeting, Andrew Cuomo is my president, and, you know, that all this kind of stuff. People say that the way that in the Manchurian candidate, Frank Sinatra says he's the kindest, bravest, warmest person I've ever known. It's like all of a sudden, after one day, every blue check mark hack yeah, is saying, can't yeah. we make Andrew Cuomo the nominee? And it's the same thing with Trump as well. It, it's not that he's doing a good job. I mean, of course, there's the MAGA people that will like him no matter what. But it does seem like his performance, such as it is, is being fairly well received outside of his kind of usual base of hardcore zealots. And I think, you know, a few weeks ago we watched Being There, where, uh, you know, the central conceit of the film is that people kind of see in the Peter Sellers character what they want and what they need to see. And I think that's one of the things going on during this crisis. It's much more comforting to think that the people in charge are doing a good job, regardless of whether or not they are, than it is to contemplate the alternative. Um, and so I think people are kind of seeing what they, what they want to see, uh, or many people are, in Donald Trump. And in in other figures like Andrew Cuomo, which uh, is pretty depressing, really. Well, in times of crisis, we need to hold on to the things that we know for certain. One of the things we can always depend on is the shopping mall. And that's why this week we watched George Romero's 1978 zombie classic, Dawn of the Dead. In 1968, George Romero brought us... Night of the Living Dead. It became the classic horror film of its time. Not that room, not that room! Now, George Romero brings us the most intensely shocking motion picture experience for all times. It gets up and kills. The people it kills get up and kill. This situation must be controlled before it's too late. They are multiplying too rapidly. Dawn of the Dead. You know, Luke, I don't know about you, but I'm a brave man and I don't scare easily. 
But as I look back upon my checkered life, I realize that something that has consistently scared me over the years, particularly in movies, is the idea of the breakdown of society. I remember seeing George Romero's Dawn of the Dead for the first time when I was in sixth grade, and I found it very upsetting, right from the opening scenes. At the time, I think I would have told you that it's because the violence was beyond anything I had ever seen in a movie up to that point. But looking back, I realized I was rattled by, first of all, how loud and angry the opening scenes were, and what they depict. Most horror movies, including Romero's earlier Night of the Living Dead, start with a sense of normalcy, but this one opens with a close-up of a garish, blood-red control room in a TV studio, where the zombie apocalypse has already started, and the people on TV are yelling at each other about how best to contain it. Everyone is upset and confused. Soon after, we move to a housing project where the tenants have been refusing to give up the dead bodies of their loved ones. There's a SWAT team that's going to raid the building, but certain members of the team regard this as an easy excuse to mow down the building's poor and non-white residents. Through these early scenes, we're introduced to the characters who become our protagonists, who will eventually stake out at a suburban shopping mall, a location that's the source of the movie's most celebrated social commentary. When I was a kid, I loved Night of the Living Dead, but I held Dawn of the Dead at arm's length, and looking back, I think the reason is that the earlier movie, though relentlessly downbeat, depicts the zombie apocalypse as having happened over one long night, and it's contained at the end, whereas the sequel does not, and it doesn't allow the possibility that society as we know it can be rebuilt. This was my first time watching the movie since I believe we watched it for a horror film class uh, that you and I took together. I'm not sure. I don't remember the screening if uh, if we were both there that week. But I guess technically we have uh, we have kind of seen this movie together uh, before. As a as a child, I definitely shared your particular fear around kind of the breakdown of society. If I had seen this film as a kid, it would have uh, scared the bejesus out of me. There is something particularly frightening, you know, far beyond the actual horror elements of the film, uh, about the idea of social structures and things like that that we depend upon, basic infrastructure breaking down. And as you say, that is how this movie begins, right? We see total dysfunction in two really important institutions. One, uh, the media, which is there to tell us what's going on. Uh, and the other in law and order with the cops behaving more just like paramilitaries, although I guess the film is also indicating that some of the cops just behave this way kind of regardless, and they're more using the disaster as an excuse. But I have a particular memory of a long car drive that I took actually from Britain to France at, I want to say, age about 11. You know, so you go through the the Channel Tunnel, and uh, we're driving, I think, from London to Normandy, and uh, we listened to a John Wyndham novel on cassette tape, a novel called The Crocken Wakes, which tells the story of an alien invasion by kind of sea monsters. And it's remarkable because I wasn't particularly frightened by most of the story. Um, you know, it's kind of like seven or eight hours you're listening to this. It wasn't until the end of the novel where the protagonists have kind of holed up in a bunker somewhere and they found canned goods, and they're actually going to be okay, but they're listening to a BBC broadcast that is basically announcing that much of the world is flooded and there's probably only a few million human beings still alive. And it's only at that point that you get the impression that actually the entire, uh, all of civilization has collapsed. 
And I remember having a basically sleepless night after that because I had never confronted that prospect before. And that's very much something you you feel with Dawn of the Dead. So even though I felt like I didn't remember this film very well, there is a primal terror to it, which was nevertheless quite familiar to me. By the way, I'm glad you brought up that horror film class we took, because in that class, I was introduced to this idea by the Marxist critic and academic Robin Wood, who proposed that many horror movies could be split into progressive and reactionary horror movies. So in his way of thinking, many horror movies are about the return of the repressed. The monster represents something that society has repressed. The reactionary ones are the ones where normalcy is restored at the end. Take, for example, the 1931 Frankenstein. The monster is defeated, but an easy reading of the 1931 Frankenstein is that it represents Dr. Frankenstein's homosexuality or something like that. Not that it intentionally represented that, but you could project that onto it. Whereas a progressive horror film is one where the repression is not merely repressed. It ends up taking over society. It ends up winning, and it could even pave the way for a better society. I don't think anybody would watch Dawn of the Dead and say it ends on an upbeat note. But it's one of Robin Wood's, I guess, prototypical progressive horror movies Because it's a movie where, not just in the opening scenes, but as it goes on, you see the structures that we use in our society collapse. The four protagonists, who take up residence in the shopping mall, they sort of continue about the rituals that they would in normal life. One of them is pregnant by one of the other ones. They hold kind of a makeshift wedding. They try to have sort of a makeshift marriage, but it doesn't work, because a marriage is meaningless in a society where these these sort of patriarchal capitalist structures have fallen. Yeah, the family doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, and as Robin Wood writes in his book, Hollywood from Vietnam to Reagan, and I'm quoting him, the characters in Night were still locked in their responsibility to the value structures of the past. The characters in Dawn are at the outset absolved from that responsibility. They are potentially free people with new responsibilities of choice and self-determination. And later he says, the substance of the film concerns the main character's varying degrees of recognition of and varying reactions to this fact. Two become zombies, two provisionally escape. It might be worth just quickly running through the film. Um, You've already kind of laid out the beginning. And and so uh, after about, I guess, half an hour, 40 minutes, and after some kind of near misses trying to pick up fuel and, and getting attacked by zombies and flying over territory where the, the, the rural people are just kind of shooting the zombies for sport and having a big party, and it's actually kind of gross. You know, they end up at this shopping mall. And what's interesting about their arrival is they actually begin by locating a kind of storeroom that has emergency supplies that are really enough to tie them over. And this is where the most important decision of the film is made, because Fran, who's the only uh, major female character, uh, recommends that they keep flying north to Canada, where I guess, you know, Canada still has universal health care, everything's going on just fine. Uh, I guess uh, George Romero was a big Michael Moore fan, you know, he watched Bowling for Columbine, he knows Canadians don't lock their doors, etc., which would be a problem in the zombie apocalypse but um but they they don't they don't keep flying north they want to stay and enjoy the fruits of the shopping mall so that's the that's the first most important decision and then the second is that 
This storeroom is really quite apart from the rest of the mall, and there's no way for the zombies to access it. But they decide, hell, well, the mall is full of, you know, all kinds of useful stuff, um, you know, bullets and, and food supplies, but also uh, all kinds of not useful but attractive commodities like coats and suits and, thing, you know, jewelry, things like that. So eventually they hatch a plan that actually works pretty well where they, uh, they're able to blockade the mall so that the zombies coming in from outside aren't able to come in and then they're able to kind of hunt down the remainder of the zombies, which basically just gives them free reign of the shopping mall. And another uh, striking thing here is that the zombies don't even really know that they're there. I mean, the zombies are already flocking to the mall when they arrive. Out of instinct. They're driven by nothing but kind of the desire to consume. When I was reading uh, a bit in advance of this uh, episode, uh, an interesting thing that I picked up on is that in earlier incarnations of uh, the zombie, like pre-George Romero incarnations of the zombie genre, Oftentimes the zombies are controlled by, you know, some kind of voodoo master or there's a centralized authority or they, you know, they have a mission and they act in a kind of organized fashion. And Romero instead gives us these postmodern zombies. You know, they're just consumers. They don't really seem to have any relationship to one another, apart from the fact that they sort of move around in groups sometimes. You know, they hardly really seem aware of each other. They eat living humans, but they don't eat each other. There's a scene where someone on the news is explaining that these are not cannibals because cannibals technically will eat members of their own species. Anyway, after the main characters have blockaded them all, they just start living a life of leisure. We see them playing in the arcade, going to the skating rink. Um, there's a particularly ridiculous moment where they have some of the mannequins from the mall and they're doing target practice with them which was something that drove me crazy throughout the film was how wasteful they are of bullets. Just <laughs> constantly shooting the zombies more times than they need to. Shooting them, uh, in many cases, just kind of for sport and because they're clearly enjoying it, not because the zombies pose any kind of immediate threat. I mean, it's funny how actually kind of non-menacing the zombies actually are. And it's a little ridiculous that the full weight of kind of the United States government and military has been unable to contain this. But eventually, you know, two of the characters succumb to the zombies. There's Roger, who is a kind of a very professional uh, SWAT agent at the start of the movie, who gets bitten as they blockade the mall and get supplies. He goes a little crazy, and eventually the other SWAT agent, Peter, has to uh, put him down, basically. And then Stephen, who is a chopper pilot for uh, the news organization we see at the beginning of the film, he also gets bitten. He goes full zombie. And then at the end of the movie, Peter promises to hold off the zombies as Fran escapes in the chopper, which she's learned to fly. At the last minute, has a change of heart, decides to run back to the chopper, and they fly away. You know, it's unclear what's going to happen to them next, just that they're going to have another shot. Another interesting thing I learned is that there was actually an alternative ending to this movie. Do you know about this? I don't, actually. What was it? So in the original version, they were supposed to kill themselves, and they'd even kind of written it out. Peter was going to shoot himself in the head. Fran was going to kill herself by sticking her head in the chopper blades. And then as the credits rolled, you were going to see the chopper blades slow down in a way that was going to indicate that if they had gotten away uh, in the chopper, they would have run out of fuel almost immediately and crashed. So that was going to be the end of the movie. I think that would have been a little too bleak, but I also think that it is probably a less effective uh, ending to the film. 
It feels like a callback to the end of Night of the Living Dead, in which all of the protagonists die. A a note about Night of the Living Dead, by the way. One of the things I think I like about George Romero is, you know, not to downplay his talent as a craftsman and even as a thinker, but I think he's somebody who came into being a political filmmaker almost unconsciously. So, you know, Night of the Living Dead, when he made it, he was one of the owners of an advertising agency in Pittsburgh. He and his colleagues pooled their resources to make what was supposed to be an exploitation film that would make easy money on the drive-in circuit. But because it was made in 1968, it's sort of as if 1968 influenced the movie. So in that movie, you have disparate survivors who are trapped in a house. There's the patriarch and his family, and the patriarch's kind of a bumbling figure, pretty hapless. His wife ends up getting eaten by their own daughter. Uh, The hero is an African-American man played by an actor named Dwayne Jones. And, you know, Romero, in interview after interview, would always say, well, we weren't meaning to make a political statement by Cassie. He was just the man for the job. But that in and of itself, obviously, is a political statement. So it's a movie where the patriarchal authority, the family unit, the young couple who are supposed to be the heroes, they get eaten two-thirds of the way into the movie. The only one who survives is the black man who's immediately at the end shot by this like wandering lynch mob slash zombie hunting posse. Well, and and actually, um, I'm glad you brought that up because there's a critical plot detail of Dawn of the Dead that I actually missed in my exposition just now, which is that the event that catalyzes the end of the movie and the escape of uh, Fran and Peter from the shopping mall is that a roving gang of bikers shows up to raid the mall. And so it's, it's striking that the actual threat uh, at the end of the movie comes from other human beings. It doesn't come from the zombies. And of course, the bikers with reckless abandon break down the doors to the mall, allowing all the zombies to flood in. Uh, Stephen, I believe it is, uh, very idiotically starts a gunfight with them because th- they're taking all the stuff. Yes. Well, it's funny because it had been a while since I'd seen this movie and I remembered the bikers being the villains of the piece. But I think Romero is drawing an equivalence between all three groups, the bikers, the protagonists, and the zombies. They're all mindless consumers. Yeah, and in the course of reading up before we recorded, I uh, discovered an article by someone named Kyle William Bishop. It's called The Idle Proletariat, Dawn of the Dead, Consumer Ideology, and the Loss of Productive Labor. And it's kind of uh, issuing a friendly amendment to the standard reading of the film, which is just that it's a critique of consumerism and, and kind of people's drive to consume for no particular reason. And it makes a point that all of the characters at the start of the movie, even though, as you say, normalcy has been disrupted, at the start of the movie, they all still have a productive purpose, right? They're all engaged in whatever their occupations are. And as soon as they leave that and settle in the shopping mall, they don't, they don't have any productive pursuits, right? Production has been entirely removed from the equation. They just kind of exist. And in a certain way, this can be read as a critique of a thesis that would later be advanced by Francis Fukuyama that we've talked about uh, on the show before. It's kind of very optimistic end-of-history thesis that he advances, and I just want to read from the article here. Kojev and Fukuyama, in their respective discussions on the end-of-history, theorize an increase in art and aesthetic cultural production following the dissolution of profit-based consumer economics. Yet in Romero's world of Dawn of the Dead, this utopian transcendence fails to take place. 
the surviving humans are frozen in their dialectical development. Even though they have all their material needs fulfilled by the bounties of the mall, they cannot move beyond their perception of the world in terms of commodity. They find no joy in their activities and relative freedoms because of their overwhelming obsession with possessions. In fact, they cannot see anything around them, including each other, in terms other than commodification. From the beginning of the film, Fran and Stephen are portrayed as belonging to each other, and their unborn child is even portrayed as an object belonging to Stephen, something that should or should not be aborted by Peter. Fran is markedly absent from the discussion on how to handle her own pregnancy. Peter even sees Roger as belonging to him. When Roger eventually dies from wounds he received from a zombie and rises from the dead as a ghoul himself, Peter makes the choice to end that existence. Roger is his to do with as he sees fit by shooting his former comrade in the head. And the article uh, concludes with, I think, a, a statement that represents pretty good reading of the movie. By creating such a bleak vision of the apocalypse, Romero cleverly presents a scathing critique of his contemporary 1970 culture, making a mockery of the dehumanizing effects of late capitalism and rampant consumerism. The new social order created by his four survivors at the rural shopping mall ends up being founded on hoarding and defense, not labor and production. And what labor does exist in this zombie economy is used not to create, but merely to preserve. Even though the toils and rigor of capitalist society have virtually disappeared, and even though the survivors sequestered in the shopping mall have all of their material needs and even fantastic desires fulfilled, they ultimately cannot transcend the bonds of consumer ideology. So I think that's a, a good and, and kind of Marxist reading of the film. And it's striking how throughout the movie, the characters are actually motivated by this kind of drive to consume, even when they don't actually need to. As I said, the, uh, I mean, the event that actually makes them most vulnerable is their decision to stay in the shopping mall and also to go down into the part where they're actually exposed to zombies, even though they already have all the supplies they need to survive. You know, it's funny. I don't know if you saw the 2004 remake of Dawn of the Dead, but I seem to recall that you know, while an effective zombie movie, um, it more or less jettisoned all of the social commentary and it actually became a movie about how cool it would be to be staked out in a mall, you know, during the zombie apocalypse. So in this uh, progressive reactionary dichotomy, there's actually two versions of this film and one is the reactionary kind. I feel like you often hear about this movie brought up in somewhat simplistic terms, People always talk about, yeah, the zombies are symbols of mindless consumers, but I don't think people often see themselves implicated in the movie. Or maybe I'm just speaking for myself here, but I feel like in the general mainstream critical reaction, the zombies are symbolic of, you know, the unwashed masses. They're the hordes. Whereas the humans staked out in the mall, well, that is us. That, that is perhaps what we would do if we were given a chance to run free in a mall. Just a random point is that I think it sounds cliche to say, but I really do think you can learn a lot about a society, not just by what movies are popular in any given era, but particularly by the horror movies, because they tap into something so primal. Obviously, Frankenstein was at his height as kind of a cultural force 90 or 100 years ago when there was all this anxiety about the death of God and... And the rise of science as well. Yeah, exactly. what its potential would be. You know, Godzilla emerges 10 years after Hiroshima. Even the torture porn movies like Saw and Hostel were very popular at a time when society was talking a lot about torture in the wake of Abu Ghraib. You know, it sounds like an armchair psychological reading. But that's what mass, I mean, that's what mass culture often calls for, a popular culture, right? 
And, you know, I, I don't think George Romero maybe consciously thought that he was cheering on the death of society when he made this movie. But but I mean, that that's what it that's the primal fear that it's tapping into people. And I, that's what all of his most successful zombie movies, whether in 1968, 1978 or 1985, they've all emerged during this time when I think people were particularly sensitive to this idea of society falling apart. I've brought it up before, but a useful exercise you can do with any horror film is to remove the horror element and see what remains. And what remains will, will tell you a lot about uh, what, what the film is actually, uh, is actually doing and what, what its fundamental themes really are. What are they doing? Why do they come here? Some kind of instinct, memory, what they used to do. This was an important place in their lives. Um, I had a question for you. Uh, as the one who uh, who proposed we do this movie, listeners, Will and I will, you know, under normal circumstances, kind of uh, meet up, sometimes hang out for hours before we actually sit down to record. And obviously, because we're not recording under normal circumstances, we can't do that this time. And so uh, Will was very keen to do this movie. And we haven't really had our usual editorial discussion as to uh, why that is. And, and I'm, a, I'm a little curious because um, the symbolism of doing it during a pandemic seems a little bit heavy-handed and, <laughs> and, uh, and seems to me should be, uh, should be beneath you, even though, of course, we've had a great discussion. Uh, that's very funny. I mean, look, it, it is heavy-handed, but I do think about this movie almost every time I leave the house now. As I walk down the street and I see people on the sidewalk, I find myself avoiding them as if they were a zombie who can give me a plague. That's even more heavy-handed than I than I meant. <laughs> I feel actually sometimes like I'm, you know, in the mall, in my home, surrounded by all my possessions. In a way, it's kind of fun. I can roam free in this shopping mall I've created for myself. I mean, I suppose uh, the thing about the, you know, how most people are experiencing the pandemic, that is like, people who don't actually catch or who haven't caught the coronavirus or who aren't working in a hospital, who aren't kind of on the front lines, but in that sense, for most of us, you know, what's unusual is just kind of disruption of our regular rhythms. And it is a very strange experience. I mean, staying indoors kind of almost all the time, not gathering in large groups, not seeing very many people. I wouldn't call it scary, but it is uh, it is certainly uh, very strange. Maybe one of the reasons I wanted to do this movie links back to what I was saying at the beginning of this episode about film comment, but also all these things that I'm afraid will go away. I do have this worry that I'm going to emerge into, not to be overly dramatic and call it a new society, but a, a worse society than the one from before. One way or another, things are going to be very, uh, very different after all this. And uh, I think much of that has to do with politics, which is something most people don't really want to think about right now. Actually, one of the things that had me thinking of Dawn of the Dead was the last round of Democratic primaries, where... It honestly felt to me a little bit like the opening scenes of Dawn of the Dead. I'm I'm actually astonished. You know, when I asked you why is it that you wanted to do this, I I you know your your answer was so it was so trite. <laughs> your reasoning is just like the most heavy-handed symbolism ever. It's like, oh, uh, you know, uh, the Illinois Democratic Party had people go vote even though they might get a virus. It's just like Dawn of the Dead. Uh, <laughs> 
But what I what I was going to say was obviously the the pandemic and all of the economic measures in particular that have been taken in various ways to deal with the impacts of the virus to deal with the fact that you know a lot of regular economic activity is slowed that has the potential to uh, bring about very profound changes in what people regard as as possible and i say the potential because it's certainly not inevitable there is an important analog here and a pretty optimistic one we can draw which is the wartime planning that took place during the second world war if you know anything about kind of the great depression and the the second world war uh, you'll know that during the Great Depression, kind of modern technology of economics, uh, Keynesian economics in particular, uh, wasn't really developed. Um, and so the impacts of the Depression were a lot worse. People didn't understand business cycles. They didn't understand unemployment. There was not a kind of intellectual consensus around some of these things. And there weren't, importantly, historical precedents for the kind of uh, large-scale economic planning that eventually came, and came in particular with the Second World War, because uh, national economies were, were focused almost exclusively on the war effort, you know, famously in Britain, people will remember, you know, rationing, things like that. You know, the American economy really helped win the war for the Allies by uh, just producing so many munitions and, and, and supplies, things like that. And this really did profoundly change uh, the political consensus after the war. You know, famously in Great Britain, uh, the wartime leader, Winston Churchill, who, by the way, some people are now comparing Andrew Cuomo to him. Um, <laughs> read a very thoughtful CNN piece uh, uh, to that effect recently. Um, or rather, when I say read, I mean skimmed to make fun of it on Twitter. But Winston Churchill was, uh, was actually defeated in the 1945 general election in Britain by the Labour Party, uh, who were basically arguing... Uh, we need to keep elements of this system in place. We've shown that parts of the economy can be run uh, efficiently by the state for, for productive purposes, and we need to carry this sense of social solidarity that people felt during the war into the post-war era. Um, and the, the greatest symbol of that, of course, was the National Health Service, which the Labour government created after the war. So there were really two things that happened. There was the, the actual experience of these wartime economies winning the war, but also there was the shared experience of people in Britain, um, and you know this applies to other countries too, you know, being bombed, going through this great national trauma, working together to achieve a common goal, having a residual sense of solidarity after the war that laid the popular foundations for the welfare state in Britain, the National Health Service, things like that. So of course I'm not saying that's what we're going to get when this is all over, but I do think the, the potential for positive changes to society. Uh, but I do think the potential for fairly sweeping and positive changes in uh, you know, society, economy, uh, and politics is there. So maybe that's a, a more optimistic uh, reading of things than, uh, than the one you made at the start of the episode. All right, great. We're getting in our helicopter with uh, a quarter tank of gas, and we're on our way. All our all our back issues of film comment, and of course, uh, twenty copies of Stupid White Men. <laughs> now watch this drive. Oh.